Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We can't be in the same room. But a podcast can't be stopped The cinemas are empty The industry is fucked But we won't go off We're not going out We're staying at home And when we watch films We watch them alone We sit in our pants Stick on something crap And then we hit Skype For a little chat Little chat Little chat Little chat Little chat Hey 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 We're back hey. Another belated edition of Film Chat. In keeping with the crazy year we've had, our schedule for releasing these is equally crazy. It was all just a way to reflect the reality we're living through, not because we're lazy and, you know, take ages to edit this. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to disorient our listeners by producing our podcast too regularly. Exactly. It would have have fucked them up. Um, Sam, the industry, as we know it, the film industry is, is going through a massive turbulent shifts. Cinemas are empty. Netflix subscriptions are through the roof. Disney Plus has been a huge hit. This pandemic has been great for Disney, really, in terms of the business. They were aiming for like 30 million subscribers. They've got like 80 million as people are indoors watching stuff. And as such, uh, the entire business model has changed. So a couple of big stories with regards to that. The first one that sort of came out, which might be horribly out of date by the time you're listening to this, is that Warner Brothers are going to do simultaneous releases of all their big franchise movies next year on HBO Max, this streaming service which I was sort of vaguely aware of, just one of the new streaming services you have or don't have. So movies such as like Dune, uh, all the DC films, uh, Matrix 4, you can either go see them and if you live near a cinema that's lucky to be open, or you can stream it on HBO Max. You've got to get that HBO Max, that streaming service which has... Um, some shows on it, which no one was really familiar with. Um, and this has got the filmmakers up in arms. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't, I don't know if there's a um, precedent for because I mean the studios have have tried a bunch of like experimental changes with releases or shortening the period between the theatrical release and the um, uh, video on demand release. But this is the first time that such a move has resulted in uh, some of their kind of uh, marquee filmmakers speaking out directly against it. Christopher Nolan, Lord Nolan himself, who is quite loyal to Warner Brothers, I would say. They, they, they always uh, hand over the billions that he needs to, to make his crazy films and kind of uh, sort of made his career in a way. And he was absolutely scathing about, uh, about the announcement. And then uh, recently, Denny Villeneuve, who will be yeah, releasing Dune with Warner Brothers next year, a huge blockbuster film, 
um, also criticized it in uh, extremely sharp terms. And apparently Warner Brothers kind of failed to consult with uh, with their filmmakers on this. It was a broadside that took everybody by surprise. So that might be part of why people are speaking out so outraged. So I'm sure that the WhatsApp groups that all the top filmmakers are in, they're all just chatting about how infuriating this is and, and you know, working each other up into a, into a frenzy over it. So maybe the backlash will have an effect and they'll have to row back. It'll be interesting to see because it does seem like a move that is assuming the death of cinema in a way, right? You're, you're basically saying no one's going to go to the movies anymore. The game's over. We're just going to stream stuff now. And if we don't make HBO Max this kind of must-have streaming service, then uh, it's all going to be Disney and Warner Brothers is going to fold because you know we'll be the chumps who's still releasing films in cinemas while everyone's watching mulan 2 on you know disney plus it seems like such a sort of cynical money man maneuver because it's all owned by the same conglomerate and they're like they launched hbo max and unlike disney plus it hasn't really done the business it should have done and it's like lost loads of money they've piled so much money into it that it has to succeed and then looking at the calendar and they're like they've got all these films they don't know if cinemas are going to be open Tenet was a bit of a canary down the coal mine. It didn't really make enough money to justify releasing a big blockbuster in a pandemic. So like, okay, we've got to release these movies. Like, why not put them onto this other thing? And then maybe we can right these two wrongs and we'll all make money. But it seems kind of short-sighted. I think the reason Disney is successful is because it's so huge. It's like too big to fail, right? They've got all the IP. They've got all the movies. You know, like the blockbuster calendar is like 80%... Disney, whereas Warner Brothers don't have enough. Are you, you know, in their slate? Are you so excited about June and I don't know Matrix Four? Whereas like Disney is sort of cost-effective, especially if you've got kids. I can understand the impetus for getting it right. You got like rather than shouting out how much money to go to the cinema, you're gonna have all these Pixar movies, all these Disney movies, all these Star Wars movies, all these Marvel movies. That's cost-effective in a way HBO Max isn't. Yeah, and also I don't see how. Uh, like the finance of it will work. I, it just seems that piracy would just decimate the money to be made. You know, the moment you put it, put it on a streamer, it will just be on Pirate Bay or whatever the latest thing is called. That's true. Yeah. Now let me ask you. Like, I just want to like, what is your view on the kind of the necessity of seeing movies on the big screen? I don't know if we we've probably talked about this a bit before, but that's that's what's kind of hanging in the balance here, right? Like, what's at stake in the potential survival? or demise of the cinema industry and the, the world in which everybody watches the latest releases, you know, whether they're blockbuster films or art house on their laptops, you know, or, you know, they get a home cinema or whatever, maybe they get the biggest TV they can to replicate the experience and uh, cinema itself kind of, you know, fades away as a kind of piece of mass entertainment and only remains in like boutique, like places like the BFI South Bank or yeah. whatever. What is your, what's your kind of, level of fear about that or how do you I think it'd be a, it'd be a uh, tragedy like there's nothing like it i don't know i feel like films are the most dominant art form of our culture and cinemas are the best place to experience them i don't know it just seems also it's just it would put so many people out of work you know it's just such a it's like shutting down a huge part of the industry everybody who owns or works in a cinema just suddenly out of a job in such a sudden way there's no because, like, streaming's, like, been coming up for a while and there's been, like... But to have it suddenly to switch just seems just unethical almost. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think 
I mean, sometimes I think filmmakers can sound a little precious about the need to see their movies on the big screen and how if you end up watching it at home, then you might as well have not yeah, seen yeah, it at yeah. all. Or like watching it on an iPod Nano is the same as watching it on a TV or whatever. Like it's all just worthless compared to the unique cinema experience, which I don't really buy. I think you can have a great movie watching experience at home just as you can in the cinema. But at the same time, it is a unique thing that would be awful if it went away and it would also be awful if it ceased to be a form of mass entertainment i think i don't think that cinemas are going to go away entirely but um if we do end up in a position where blockbusters are all watched at home and you only go to the cinema for the um the goddard retrospective at the bfi then uh, something will something will definitely be lost you know like i like going to south bank or whatever but I also have had enormous amounts of fun going to Peckham Plex to see Aquaman, you know, oh, and like... What a time. I think, I th- I think there's, you know, that's, uh, that, is, that communal aspect of cinema is not something you can replicate at home and is definitely a va- really, really valuable thing. It's like, I don't think film necessarily requires cinema to survive, but it's complementary in a way that is unique and that is not, cannot be replaced, Yeah, you know. So, um I, yeah, I definitely do think that uh, that the survival of um, of cinemas is really important. So let's hope that Warner Brothers and Coronavirus, the team up to destroy them, is not not going to succeed. And obviously, I don't think the the Dis- Disney Plus be- becoming the sort of world corporation like Disney is going to merge with Amazon and just be everything. I, I don't think that is very healthy either, <laughs> clearly for uh, for cinemas because they have too much clout, you know. They're just able to tell cinemas how long to play all their movies and charge them extortionate amounts to uh, to have them and, you know, push everyone out, bully them all out. And um, that is, uh, yeah, that's also a danger. So, yeah, it's been a bad year for cinema, you know, the future of cinema. So let's hope we can pull out of it. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Yeah, this is... Christopher Nolan here, Lord Nolan, um, apoplectic with rage, furious, uh, losing it. My apartment is wrecked, destroyed by my own hand. It's okay. It's just things. Not the dream of cinema, which lives on no matter how much Warner Brothers have tried to destroy it, actually. Well... I've got a plan, alright, I'm not going to sit around, I mean I have spent all day on the phone calling uh, calling Tom, calling Jonathan, calling Emma, um, now I'm just uh, mashing away at my keypad in fact, don't even know who I'm speaking to, but I've got to get the message out, Christopher Nolan, not going anywhere, alright, I've got a new production partner, the UK government, bigger than Warner Brothers. I spoke to Rishi Sunak on the phone. I said, Rishi, I need you. Uh, You need me as well. He said, I'm listening. And he signed on to my new project. The title of this film, Fuck the Warner Brothers Cunts. Now, it's about a uh, beautiful man, suave, three-piece suit. He's a spy. And uh, the only people standing in his way are fat American slobs, the brothers Warner, um, but he's got allies, right? Literally millions of them. So the, the budget for my new film is going to be in the region of 
500 billion pounds. And the reason it is so large is it will require 85% of the working age population of the United Kingdom um, building a screen big enough to show it on. And it will act as a fiscal stimulus to um, restore the UK economy after coronavirus is over. Very important. So we'll be saving the UK, saving cinema, saving the world. And that's how Lord Nolan reacts when he gets slapped in the face. Um, All right. Thank you for uh, listening to me, wherever you are. And I'm going to hang up and dial again. Shall we discuss the insanely (laughs) overstuffed, turgid slate that uh, has been has been announced by Disney. So they so Disney Disney held a investor day, mm. um, which is just as exciting as it sounds, in which they updated on all of their new projects for Marvel, Star Wars, and Disney Animation Studios. And I am referring here to an article on The Verge, which advertises the fifty-two biggest projects that have been announced so not just or not just any old projects but the top 50 they have carefully curated and selected the 50 most exciting announcements so the hype trains are all arriving at this this is the biggest station for hype trains this is the clapham junction of uh, uh of hype train stations um so many things coming uh we got a bunch of new uh disney marvel stuff one division which we already knew about falcon the winter soldier soldier the loki television series the hawkeye television series three more series something called iron heart which is like a sort of young iron man thing um something called armor wars which examines quote tony stark's biggest fears i don't know what that's about um uh, and don cheeto's gonna be in Pixar movies as well, and Pixar spin-offs and so on, and then even more things uh, that are not related to those three major brands. Noah Hawley is getting to make a new TV show. Ice Age, those films are getting a spin-off series starring Simon Pegg. I'm sure you're very excited about that. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> it's just relentless. Yeah, it's just, it's just overwhelming. It's an absolute sensory assault. I'm, I don't, nobody could have possibly gotten through that entire investor show without feeling severely ill (laughs) yeah i'm sure they had like little buckets for people to throw up into because they were getting so overstuffed with upcoming content it's truly revolting it feels like they've waited like when you know this is always was going to happen when like disney bought star wars but they just waited like five years to like really like reveal their plan it's like no no we'll be milking this for every fucking cent it's worth, we'll be producing non-step stop Star Wars content forever. I think, like, I didn't, I didn't necessarily appreciate the extent to which, like, not only were they going to milk it forever, but they were just going to exponentially increase the rate of content production. So it's not just like, oh, we're just going to keep making Star Wars movies forever. It's like, no, no, no we're going to make fifty Star Wars films, TV shows a, a year. Yeah. Like, how is that sustainable? It just seems completely crazy. I mean, partly it's just like the fact that. You get all this, all this information at once. It's just quite funny. Like you know, maybe if this was just released, these, these news stories are spread out over a normal period of time. We wouldn't be talking about it in the same way. But I think the thing that's a bit depressing about it is like all the things announced are all like set in like an old timeline. You know, they're not 
they're all set, you know, in the sort of George Lucas era, you know, just after the original trilogy, just before the new Disney movies. They're all like the old iconography. It's going to be all these same old planes and costumes and characters are going to mention planets you've heard of in the other movies. Whereas like, you know, there's obviously a limit to how good this massive behemoth, you know, corporate thing can be. But if it was like, we're going to make a new movie set after the events of the previous film with a new set of characters... And it's going to be completely different to the stuff before. It's like, you know, fair enough. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's certainly the possibility that some of these shows will be good. I mean, there are so many of them. <laughs> Statistically. Just there is some something. The the spaghetti will stick to the wall in at least one of uh, these cases. Um, But yeah, it's the, the recycled nature of it is what is is what feels so grim. You know, if they were just announcing tons and tons of projects which um none of which you had any connection prior connection to and all sort of tantalizingly mysterious that would be that would be really exciting but like a spin-off from a spin-off of a spin-off is obviously not especially exciting and it feels like they're trying to um split the difference between having original ideas and mindless sequels so you know no one is excited by the thought of like um, a film which is just the latest one in a franchise with a very very large number at the end you know like you know, rocky 15 or whatever yeah. maybe the star wars movies are an exception to that but otherwise i think there's an intrinsically you know lower appeal to something that just looks like you're churning out the same stuff over and over but some brand new show it's original you don't know what it's going to be about but it it contains this character and this actor that you're really familiar with seems to have just enough of both elements I guess, um, to be a kind of safe bet while also being able to be sold as in some way original or um, exciting. And yeah, I don't know. It's hard not to feel a bit sad. I mean, it's like, think if all of the effort that they're putting into this stuff that could be being used to tell other stories, like there's just so many other possible stories that could be told and instead it's going to be, you know, I mean, I know that's quite a grouchy old man type thing to say, but like the number, the amount of resources this represents is just, uh, it's just extraordinary, and and it's also hard not to escape the feeling that it's all very um, disposable. You know, it's all going to turn out on the streaming services. It's going to be like the Netflix chaff. You know, like it's dropped on there. There'll be about five different Star Wars shows on there. Like no Star Wars fan can possibly consume them all. Um, so like I don't know. It's just all going to be washed away in the in the great glut of content, which is um uh what entertainment is now i have a i have a grand theory about the whole thing which i'm sure somebody else has made and i think i mentioned this with like the avengers movies where it's like you know film and tv film is becoming tv really like films are becoming episodes more and more it's just content and like it's just the next you know chunk of a much bigger story that will never let never end but i think tv is becoming more like comic books in that like they introduce a character. If it's successful, he'll get his own limited edition run. And then uh, he'll die, the character. But don't worry, he'll be back because no one's ever dead. Uh, it's the same, like, there was announcements today about, like, or in the past week about Spider-Man 3 is going to be, like, a sort of taking the uh, their cues from the previous animated Spider-Man film. It's going to be, be a multiverse. All the Spider-Mans are back. Alfred Molina's back from that movie from a completely different franchise, but he was he was popular and we own that character and we got enough money to pay that actor, so he'll be back. 
And if it's successful, why not a Doc Ock, uh, you know, limited run comic book? But it'll just be a TV show now and it'll be like 60 million. And I think that's where it's going. It's got this kind of disposable, we've got to produce enough stuff. If something's popular, it's very led by the market. If there doesn't sell enough copies, we'll just cancel it. If one of the characters is successful in it, we'll spin that off. Yeah, the uh, the crossover aspect is very comic booky as well. Yeah, and I think comic books basically, you know, they could operate that way because it's just print. It's uh, cheap to print comic books, so you can have that kind of like slightly loose cannon approach to your storytelling. But now there's just enough money to to do that with TV and film. It seems like. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I'll end up watching some of this stuff like a sucker. I was a bit relieved to not really like the Mandalorian very much, honestly, because I was like, okay, I can. I can disregard this now. I don't need to watch this. I, this doesn't need to suck up my life. I've seen a bit of it. It wasn't that good. So I can now move on safely and I don't need to watch the, the two new Mandalorian spin-off television series either. Well, the Mandalorian sort of epitomizes this kind of approach where the show is all about like just going to a place you've seen before. But the big plot revelations are like, it's this character from that show you didn't watch. And a certain fan is like, what? I can't believe that the character from the animated Clone Wars, which only me and, you know, percentage-wise, small audience watched. And it's like... And the most original thing about it is just like, what if Yoda but a baby? You know, like, that's the only original element, which itself isn't original. It's like, what if it was smaller and cuter? And it, it cost a billion dollars, and it made two billion, so it's worth it. Yeah, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. I am watching it, but it's rubbish. Illegally, though. They're not getting my money. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hello, Film Jet. I have a question. Have you ever seen the sand from a close distance? It is made up of tiny shells and pieces of glass, thousands of years old. In my new film, Dune, I had wanted people to see such scenes. I had once thousand runners making my dunes from the purest sand in Namibia. Now tell me, Filmshah, can you see my dunes like this on a shitty laptop screen? No! You need cinema. These Warner Frères have destroyed my dunes. It is unacceptable. It is a disgrace. I have had it up to here with these pathetic Warner Frères and their stupid HBO Max. You know, I went to them, to their stupid office, and I said, I want to see the brothers. I want to smack the top hats of their bald little heads. They said to me, Mr. Vionneur, they are not here. This sums them up, film cat. Not here for quality. Not here for filmmakers. I need to sleep now, film cat. Timothy Chalamet was up all night playing his banjo. Please, film cat, report the truth. You cannot let them get away with this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Simon and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. Let's join review. Share between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on. The guys are in. So let the chat So, Danny, we've turned up our noses as real cinema guys at the glut of mainstream entertainment that's coming our way. Let's turn our attention and our vast brains to a real film. It's in black and white. It's made by a renowned filmmaker. It's about a renowned filmmaker. This is real cinema, prestige cinema. I'm talking, of course, about David Fincher's Mank. This is uh, his latest film. His first one is made in a long time, since Gone Girl, in fact. So it's been bubbling away in the background for a while. And it is all about the creation of Citizen Kane, and specifically focusing on one of its writers, Herman J. Mankiewicz. And it tells a particular um, form of the story around the much contested um, uh, narrative about the production of uh, the script for Citizen Kane and whether he or Orson Welles deserves more credit. And in this version of the story, he clearly does the bulk of the work and Orson Welles is uh, uh, kind of taking advantage of him. So the, in the film, he is um, holed up, uh, recovering from a broken leg in a place in California. And uh, he has to work on Citizen Kane there in the script while he struggles with his uh, uh, alcoholic addiction. And there are flashbacks to the earlier period in the 30s when he got the commission for the film and... Uh, and it sort of sets the stage for the, the themes that come out in the in the movie. In particular, his antagonistic relationship towards the newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, who is generally presumed to be the model for Charles Foster Kane in Citizen Kane itself. Here is a clip. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz, New York playwright and drama critic turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, blood, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. So, uh, we were just moaning about the possibility of simultaneous um, releases on stream and in the cinema for all of Warner Brothers movies but that is exactly how this film came out I watched it on Netflix and you went to the cinema right Danny I did indeed I did indeed so tell me what uh you, what your experience of the movie was watching it in that beautiful empty cinema it was great I I really loved it I thought it was great I, I saw it yesterday it's quite funny because the the movie is sort of like a riposte to like auteur theory I was reading a bit about how this idea came about from the movie. And there's a famous essay by Pauline Kale where she talked about how she just made the argument that Citizen Kane owns a lot to the screenplay and Herman Mankiewicz doesn't get the credit he deserves. 
And David Fincher also has this reputation as being the sort of Kubrickian genius, which he himself is quite dismissive about. But saying that, I just think he's one of the guys who just makes films on a different level to his peers. As, you know, a piece of filmmaking craft, it's just pleasurable on that level. It's kind of shot as if it's a film that could be a contemporary of Citizen Kane, of like black and white photography. And even the sound design I thought was very clever. It's sort of somehow, you know, crisp, like 2020 sound, but with the sort of feel of 1940 sounds. And also the score did a good job. There's always a... um a worry when you take this kind of creative approach that will just be a sort of self-indulgent pastiche. But I think it really sort of earns its aesthetics. And there's obviously, there's like a whole subgenre of movies about making movies and glamorizing Hollywood. But David Fincher is kind of too subversive a filmmaker to make anything too romantic. And I liked how it was about why he wrote Citizen Kane, not how he wrote it. And, you know, in other films, there's the kind of that lazy cliche where characters kind of talk in lyrics or in famous quotes. And you can see the sort of dumber version of this would be like characters saying lines that turn up in Citizen Kane. But it's got no like one-to-one parable, you know? There's no like, it's not like inspiration equals the final product. It's just more a kind of woozy kaleidoscope of memories, which kind of sort of build up an argument for what maybe became Citizen Kane. But it's no, it's not very cut and dry. I liked how... He's like a sort of slightly pathetic character. He's not heroic. He's got kind of good politics, but he's obviously not really got that... His principles aren't particularly great. You know, he's still very much in that world. And I liked that sort of ambiguity to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I think it was... I think it's really good. I had some reservations going in, having seen the uh, trailer for it. Um, but I think it, you know, dealt dealt with them. It was definitely... Um, uh, yeah, it was definitely excellent. Um, the the decision to do it in this kind of pastiche style, I think, is very interesting. And that's the main thing that I wasn't um, sure about beforehand. Basically, because I think that doing it that way means the film kind of has to justify not just being a formal exercise. And when you watch something which feels like a loving recreation of a 40s film rather than a film that's about that period... I think it has to work harder to convince you that it's to connect with you, basically, because otherwise you're just enjoying some kind of nice creation by someone who's doing it very lovingly. I mean, in the way that a like a, a much, much inferior filmmaker, Todd Phillips, when he made Joker and he basically was like, I know how to make a great movie. You just make it like they did in the 70s. I just copy my favorite filmmaker from the 70s and do everything like then. And the titles look like they did in the 70s and all the buildings and the setting and everything. And it's just like uh, a Scorsese film. And I've made a great film. It's Scorsese. So I think that there is that, like, I didn't think it was going to be like Joker, like sort of having that kind of pretend prestige quality to it. But I think that I fear that it would be just come across as clever uh, above like whatever it was trying to say. And that what, like, there is a bit of, you get a bit of plausible deniability with that approach, you know? Like, oh, if things sounded too artificial, then maybe that's just because I was doing a kind of 40s type type movie, you know, or if a character said something that didn't really land, it's like, well, that's just the style that I was adopting. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah. It, it becomes a little harder to connect with it. So like on the one level, it definitely delivers because of how well crafted all that stuff is, how carefully it's done. You know, it's not just the font they chose for the title or whatever, but it's obviously a way that the whole movie is approached. And in particular, in the uh, wisecracking script, Mankiewicz himself had this reputation in Hollywood as being a funny guy. 
and um, he uh, is a wisecracker in this movie, and he's always like making jokes. And they land in a similar way to uh, films of that period, you know, His Girl Friday or whatever. It has that back and forth quality. People are very wry and dry and knowing and very self-deprecating. There's a lot of that. Uh, and his whole persona as a this like self-deprecating, smartest guy in the room, alcoholic drunk is kind of a, a classic one, like a classic kind of archetype. And it's done very well. So it sort of delivers on the level of not just mimicking the, the style of those types of movies, but d- delivering the goods. And like the script is very funny. It's like they've obviously put a lot of work into it um, and it definitely lands. And one level on which the that stylistic decision makes a certain amount of sense is that it, it has that sort of self-referential quality. I think that this is a film that's very aware that it's a, a film about filmmakers. Those things always start to eat their own tails very quickly, but you can see how the decision to set this in the 40s is, um, and make it as if it's a film from the 40s kind of... Um, somewhat uh plays into that it's also a film about a kind of uh socially awkward genius type you know a a great craftsman and obsessive you know in these uh themes which fincher has returned to a number of times in his uh in his movies and the screenplay is by david fincher's father something that um his, his only screenwriting credit which is also posthumous and it seems pretty likely that fincher david fincher worked on the screenplay like a lot but he doesn't have a credit on it no one else is credited only jack fincher so there's this like element of the relationship like he has to his own father and like how that plays into the creative process like how that's been credited in the movie and sort of what the film is about there are there are those kinds of elements and i also think that the the way in which mankowitz is this kind of guy who is very kind of self-deprecating which is a way of demonstrating that you're self-knowing but is also completely unable to escape his own flaws and the fact that he is so clever is his own sort of downfall that kind of um adopting this like wisecracking persona putting up this shield is you could say is kind of what the film itself is doing in its own stylistic choices you know like the fact that they've recreated a kind of movie character in in the way that they've portrayed Mankiewicz, like not trying to portray him as he might have really been in a highly naturalistic way or in, or in a realist style, but in this heightened period um, 40s style, they've, they've written a kind of character, but that in the movie as well, he plays a character. He is, all, he is, he is this particular larger-than-life person in all of his encounters. So there is a parallel there, which you know, is kind of pleasing. But I think like all of those kinds of elements have the risk of being just um, uh, have that kind of um, dot joining exercise or just being neat or clever, whatever. And I think ultimately the reason that it worked is because fundamentally the story that it's telling is very effective. And that by the time the film got to the end, I wasn't really thinking about all of the stylistic quirks anymore. And I was just enjoying the film for it being a good story. And, uh, yeah, what you said about it, um, concentrating on like the why of, uh, Citizen Kane rather than, than the how I think is, um, is very true. And although it draws these like obvious comparisons between like, oh, he had this experience and that's why the movie goes in this kind of a direction. 
you know, does draw those things. But that it's ultimate, ultimately about him as a person. And I think that his he is genuinely kind of sad and tragic. And like I think that was just all those elements are quite well told in the story. Like there there are some things in it that are quite broad and things that you can see coming. But it has a very clever script and the performances are really good. Uh, and uh, he is kind of a sad figure. He's a sad figure in real life. And that's how kind of how he comes across in the film. Yeah. I also thought it's the best Gary Oldman's been for a while. He's one of those people who's like heralded as like an amazing best of his generation actor. But like he's rarely playing a lead. And like it's quite a funny companion piece to his darkest hour because they're both like playing sort of drunk wits, very verbose. You sort of come alive when they have to like talk and that's a bit kind of slumped the rest of the time. And then like, you know, when they interact with people, they're like, you know, they're always on. And I thought, like, Gary Oldman was, like, brilliant. Like, really, like, it's, you can see why he took the role. It's such a sort of, like, you know, actor's showcase. But very convincing as, like, an alcoholic. I think that's a very, it's very hard to play drunk, like, well. And, like, you know, he's drunk for a lot of the film. And to do that, and not to be, like, very hammy, requires a certain amount of skill. And he kind of judged it perfectly. And Amanda Seyfried is also brilliant. She's sort of, like, it feels like she's from the 40s. She's got a very, like, old-timey look about her. She makes perfect sense of black and white with, like, peroxide hair, like, bathed in light. But I thought, like, their relationship was really interesting. And it just was just kind of surprising. Because I went in, it's like, oh, it's about Citizen Kane. I thought it was going to be a lot about, you know, it's going to be, like, a sort of really good trumbo. which just be him and a typewriter in bed, like, drinking and smoking. But it has got this kind of cool political edge to it, which was really fascinating. And just all that kind of recreation of sort of Barton Fink-esque, like, we're old-timey men who smoke and, like, stroll down corridors, I thought was really well done. So, yeah, a total delight. I would I would advise you to head to your cinema if you can. But if not, you can always stream it. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Yo, Film Chat. It's your boy, Zack Snyder here. I'm fucking loving this news about the HBO Max deal. HBO stands for my favorite expression. Hey, bro. Oh. Max is my favorite word. Uh, uh, you listen to music there, Zach. Uh, what volume you got it up? Have you got it down to men? Oh, yeah, great joke. I got it set to max. Yeah, yeah, very excited about all these movies coming out on uh, streaming. Especially my uh, four-part... 900 hour version of Justice League is fucking fantastic. Finally, my vision. The fans want, I want, you want it. You know how that stupid fucking lame ass Joss Whedon ruined my movie? Well, now it's back to how it should have been. Guess what? Batman says cunt 4,000 times in the movie. There's a bit where the Flash rapes a chick. It's fucked up, but it's kind of genius. And uh, uh, Aquaman, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he has a freeway with a whale. It's fucking brilliant. Uh, Sack out! When Zach Raff heard something that changed his life, what he listened to? When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah.
Danny, it's been a pleasure catching up with you again. You too. Recording in the film chat. Always good. I want to apologize to our listeners for my low audio quality today. Uh, I'm not um, uh, around my microphone, so I don't, don't have that available to me. So I'm just using my phone to record on to you, which I've not done before. And I just hope that it hasn't been a disaster. I hope too. Uh, otherwise, you know, I just, I just hope that it's listenable. I hope to God this hasn't been a waste of time. It doesn't have to be thrown away. But next time I should be back in touch with the big old mic, be on that sweet audio again. Um, and yeah, and uh, looking forward to 2021. Turning the corner. <laughs> Almost turning the corner. All right. Well, have a have a wonderful time. Danny, I will catch up with you again for the very exciting Christmas episode of Film Chat. And see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So, Paul Masson. 102, take three. Action, please. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson. Inspired by that same French excellence, it's fermented in the bottle and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So Paul Masson... are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.